This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We hope you're beginning to look into General Assembly, June 17th to the 21st in Birmingham, Alabama. Experiencing Christ's love is only the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor as you join your fellowship family to worship, learn, and grow together. Through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with live podcast interviews and entertainment, you'll meet Cooperative Baptists from around the United States and beyond. For more information, visit cbf.net backslash General Assembly. Our guest for this week's conversation is a historian, an author, and speaker. Jamar Tisby is the author of The Color of Compromise, the co-host of Pass the Mic podcast, and the president of The Witness. Jamar, thank you for joining the conversation. I'm honored to be on here. Thank you for having me. All right. I just have to ask, how does a guy from Chicago end up in Mississippi? Walk us through your story. (laughs) Sure. So I grew up north of Chicago, almost to Wisconsin, but not Wisconsin, to be sure. And uh, spent spent my whole uh, life growing up there. And uh, after college, I went to school at the University of Notre Dame. I joined Teach for America, and they placed me in the Mississippi Delta Corps. That's how I got down south, and that's pretty much where I've stayed ever since. I've been in parts of the Deep South for uh, over 15 years now. Wow. Um, well, I guess two things. One, I'm sure you like the winters in Mississippi a lot more than the winter in Chicago. <laughs> that might be the single biggest factor that has kept us down south uh, for for so long. We, my wife and I, love uh, the the weather here. The food, the people are the best part. But uh, every time we go back to our family, she's from the Midwest too. It's it's always over like holiday breaks, like Thanksgiving and Christmas, which is the worst time to go. So <laughs> it's pretty easy to come back to the deep south and say, yeah, this is fine for another year or two or fifteen. Yeah. I might I might trade the summers though. Uh, you know, the the winds coming off the lake in Chicago is a lot better than um, oh, the sweltering heat yeah. in Mississippi. Yes, yes. Oh man, if 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 we could have Chicago in june july for even just a couple more months because that's about all you get is two or three months of summer up that way but the lakefront in the summer is gorgeous and uh yeah i i like to think that in heaven we'll we'll have all those options available all the time anywhere we want to go so (laughs) one day one day 
Well, not to, to, you know, kind of frustrate our Mississippi listeners, but um, you kind of get the raw end of the deal. I've, I've got a parishioner of mine here in Baton Rouge that did uh, Teachers for America, but he got sent to uh, to Brooklyn, New York for a couple of years. So um, <laughs> you, know, you might need to talk about your placement officer for uh, for how you ended up hey. in Mississippi. There, there, there's a, there's a lot to commend about doing uh, your core years in in a small town. I've, I've got many, many stories that uh, friends who were placed in bigger cities just don't have, and that's one of the things that we've we've grown to love about not just the South but small town communities is, you know, we don't. I mean, the closest Starbucks is is an hour and a half away. The closest movie theater is about about the same, and so you really have to connect with people, uh, community, and people become your entertainment and your uh, connections. So we've had some great relationships down here. They're always hard to maintain because, you know, just nationally the trend is, is toward bigger cities. And certainly that would be on the radar for us at some point. It's just God's got us here right now. And we're trying to enjoy the richness and the beauty of the place we're in, which by the way, we get the raw end of the deal a couple ways because we're actually in the Arkansas Delta still a Mississippi Delta if you think of what the Delta actually is, which is a floodplain, which covers Tennessee, parts of Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. But uh, yeah, we, uh, we did live in Jackson for five years while I was going to seminary as well. And I go to school in Mississippi. Well, just for any Mississippi listeners or any potential um, police that I might pass when I'm going through the state. We love Mississippi. I love Mississippi. Please, <laughs> uh, please don't take my words uh, too harshly. Um, now, now you're the president of The Witness. Tell us more about this organization and how it gets started. Sure. It's called The Witness, a Black Christian Collective, and the website is thewitnessbcc.com if folks want to visit the website where we have hundreds of articles on race, religion, politics, culture, you name it, all from a black Christian perspective. And the way it started was in 2011, seems like a long time ago now. I remember I was sitting in my living room. Uh, I had just started seminary, it was my first semester there. And what I was trying to do was find some sense of community in terms of folks who shared my same race and culture, because the spaces where I was learning theology were very white. Nothing wrong with that per se, but uh, I was wondering and looking for other folks who had similar backgrounds, similar concerns as I did being a black person in the U.S. And so uh, started with a Facebook page, and originally it was called the Reformed African American Network after you know Reformed theology coming out of the Protestant Reformation, which again is very European, very white, but there were a few black folks there, and I wanted to connect us, and so we started this. Um, I started this Facebook page, and it grew into a website, and then a podcast, and um, in 2017. We switched the name to The Witness to be more aligned with our mission, to, to just be a voice and a perspective of Christians in the broader world, not just uh, a small portion of American Christianity. And it's been an exciting ride. We've got a team now 
of nine people uh, who are almost all volunteers and just really love the mission of what we're trying to do, which is address the core concerns of African Americans and Black people biblically. So, um, yeah, it's it's been quite the adventure with a lot of ups and downs in terms of interacting with people online and in person about issues of race as they affect the church. What's your greatest hope for the witness? I would love for people who aren't Christian to understand that there's more than white evangelicalism, that Christianity has a very broad scope in terms of the people who who adhere to it and particularly voices in the public square so uh, if you if you do a Google search about um, you know Christian views on whatever issue or even uh, uh, searches about like how to read the Bible or things like that you're almost always going to get someone who's white. Again, nothing wrong with that per se, but it doesn't represent the diversity of the body of Christ, either here in the United States and certainly not worldwide, where the majority of people are black and brown skinned. So we want to be a voice in the public sphere in particular that's speaking to relevant topics in politics, in economics, in society and culture. Uh, We do it from a distinctly Christian perspective, but also with an eye toward the black experience, black experiences in America. And so I I, I hope that that folks realize there's a diversity of believers out there coming from different perspectives. We all all don't believe the same things about the same issues. Um, And I also hope we push the conversation among Christians to help us think through what faithfulness looks like in the 21st century, because in 2019, it's different than it looked in 1969 or 1819 or any other period of American history. So what does it look like to apply God's truth in today's context, particularly with an eye toward uh, dynamics of race and racism? What kind of uh, resources would you want people to know about The Witness? Wow. Well, like I said, we've got hundreds of articles on our website, thewitnessbcc.com, by a variety of people. So we, we call ourselves a collective because uh, one of the things we want to do is highlight the fact that there's not one Black Christian perspective. There are many. And we don't presume to speak for all Black Christians. What we like to say is we're not the voice, we're the microphone. And so the, our podcast is called Pass the Mic. And, and what we like to do is highlight the diversity of opinions, thoughts, perspectives from black Christians. So you'll see that particularly on the website, um, we, we compiled a list of black theologians and their books and works, which people are often looking for because one of the sort of part of the low hanging fruit, if you want to push the conversation about racial and ethnic diversity is to diversify your library, diversify your resources. And so folks just getting started, black or white or anyone else, oftentimes have trouble finding people of color uh, to, to add to their books, book collection or to help with their sermon prep, things like that. So we've got that on there as a resource. We do a lot of black history. I'm a student of black history. It kind of uh, informs the ministry that we do. And so 
Um, there are tons of articles about heroes of mine like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was born in 1917 as a sharecropper. She was the last of 20 children in her family. She grew up and became a sharecropper. But then when she was in her 40s, she heard a uh, presentation about voting rights in Mississippi. And so she became a voting rights activist and rose to national prominence as a civil rights activist. Uh, and, and so we talk about her, but she was a staunch Christian as well. And we talk about how her faith motivated her activism. So I would love for folks to access resources like that that speak to uh, particularly people in the black church tradition who never saw this big dichotomy between faith and activism, between uh, what they believe about Christ and how they live in the world, particularly around issues of civil rights, human dignity, politics, those kinds of things. Uh, so I think there's something for everyone. Um, even if you're not black, there's a ton of resources that I think are helpful to white people and white Christians in particular. So uh, we also have a huge diversity of writers, white, black, Asian descent, um, Latin American, all of, all, of, all of God's people really represented. So I'm very pleased at, at the fact that a lot of folks have found resonance with our materials, and I encourage folks to check it out. Now, in, in January, you released The Color of Compromise, The Truth About America's Church Complicity and Racism. Um, I was meandering through Powell, Powell's bookstore a couple of weeks ago in Portland, Oregon, and I saw your book at the top of the oh, staff's dude. pick shelf. And I told one of the bookstore staff members, I was so excited. I said, hey, I get to interview this guy in a couple of weeks. And his response was about what I expected from a Northwestern hipster. It was great. Um, <laughs> so so th this, this book is a, a deeply historical survey of continued systematic racism in America through politics and the church from um, during and after uh, slavery and into today. Um, I know this might seem like an obvious question, but why was now the time to write this book? You know, I think the timing was important and it was something pretty much out of my control. Uh, I, I've been reflecting on the reception of this book, which has been mostly positive, kind of surprisingly so given the topic. And I think a lot of it is just that it was the right time for this conversation in the church, uh, nationally speaking. I think that's due to several reasons. Um, in the 2010s alone, we've witnessed a whole lot of important episodes regarding uh, race and, and society. So in 2012, it was Trayvon Martin, which a year later when his killer was acquitted in court, that's when the phrase Black Lives Matter hit social media. Then in 2014, the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, that launched Black Lives Matter into the national lexicon and began a conversation about racial justice. And I, and I think that phrasing is important. Uh, when I first started this work, sort of publicly speaking about topics around race and religion, the conversation was about racial reconciliation. And it really focused on harmony, how do we get people together, um, how do we desegregate churches and, and other institutions? And those are valuable conversations. But around 2014 and Black Lives Matter, and then with a slew of other race-related incidents, um, the conversation 
started to t- turn toward racial justice. Now, of course, secular folks have been having this conversation for a long time, but it really didn't hit uh, conservative white Christianity until uh, uh, un- until the mid 2010s in my work and in my experience. And so, you know, the black church tradition had always talked about this other strands of Christianity had already been talking about this, but it became a topic of national conversation and a topic within the church, which I think is an important turn and a positive one, but there's also a lot of resistance to it. So I've seen many, many people uh, talk about how like social justice is a distraction from the gospel versus others like me who would say that um, it's an outworking, it's an expression, and it's integral to the gospel, a holistic uh, a holistic view of the gospel. So those conversations started happening. And what I noticed was, and really the reason I became interested in the academic study of history is as all these things were going on, the shootings and the, and the police brutality and, uh, you know, Charleston in uh, the Emanuel 9, Charlottesville, all of these things happening. I found that when I was trying to understand these events, that historians had the most helpful things to say. They were able to give context to what we were seeing in real time. And so they were able to talk about how a community like Ferguson becomes predominantly black through uh, redlining and restrictive covenants and racial steering. They were able to talk about the origins of the police force. So how you get a predominantly white police force uh, policing mainly black communities. They were able to talk about uh, the Emmanuel uh, AME church and the fact that in the 1820s, Denmark VC, uh, was uh, had planned a, a massive slave revolt. It was interrupted, and, and he and uh, more, more than 30 others were hanged as a result of it. But he was part of that church uh, 150 years ago. And after that incident with, with Vesey's planned slave revolt, they burned the church down and rebuilt it. And then uh, this white supremacist walks in in the 21st century and massacres uh, black people there precisely because of the historic importance of the church. That's, that's part of the reason why he chose it. So historians were able to unpack that. And I said, we need this conversation in the church. We need this historical background. We need this historical context for why not only the church is segregated, but why it's so hard to have these conversations and to make progress in the one organization, the one institution, the one body where we should be exemplifying and modeling racial harmony. We sometimes have the most uh, racially recalcitrant people and organizations. So it just landed, I think, in the midst of all of that. It certainly uh, felt like a, a burning urgency on my part to to share this as I was learning history in my uh, PhD program. And so just compiled it to have an introduction for folks who wanted to, to learn more about the history of race in the church in the United States. You wrote, an, an honest assessment of racism should acknowledge that racism never fully goes away. It just adapts to changing times and context. 
Why do you think people don't see racism as a modern social construct? There's a whole lot of sociology and psychology that goes into it in group and out group and social conditioning and things like that. Uh, if we're if we're thinking about it in a theological frame, I think this is a version of hard heartedness that the Bible talks about. Um, uh, the Bible talks about uh, removing hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh. So on one level, it's a failure to understand one's neighbor and therefore a failure to love one's neighbor. Uh, on another level, as James two talks about, it's preferential treatment uh, that that um, in, in that passage, it's talking about favoring the rich over the poor, <clears throat> which there's a huge class element to racism as well, a huge economic element, uh, but also that favoritism can fall along racial and ethnic lines. Uh, I think it's a, a, a Paul confronting Peter moment where uh, uh, Peter withdraws from eating with the Gentiles when certain men from Jerusalem came and it says he withdrew because of fear. And so there's a fear of man aspect going on here. So there's a lot of ways that we can understand it spiritually speaking. I think on a more horizontal level, there's a huge gap in our collective understanding of U.S. history as it relates to race. The fact that uh, white supremacy, which would mean that people who are white, and that which is accepted in broader white culture is normative, it's normal, it's standard, it's central. That's how I sort of parse what white supremacy means, that this whole country was, was founded on those concepts. And for example, one of, the, one of the big data points that stuck out to me and was um, a big motivation for me to write this book is in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Anglican men, gathered together and they made a law that said that baptism would not confer freedom on anyone who was a Native American, African descended, or of mixed uh, race. And, and, and in that decision, it stands out for two reasons. Number one, it combines race, religion, and politics. So you've got this legislative body, this political body making a law about religion, referring to baptism, that ran along racial lines, Native Americans, African-descended people, and mixed heritage folks. And so all of those things up to this day in the 21st century are intertwined. You can't draw neat lines between them. You can analyze them separately, but they're all related. And then the other reason it stands out is that's 1667. That's way before 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. It's more than a century before the uh, ratification of the Constitution. And so these issues of race and religion, there's never not been a time when they haven't been intertwined in really complicated and unhelpful ways. This predates the political entity known as the United States. So, you know, those are some of the factors that, that went into saying, we've got to have this book and we've got, to, we've got to understand how we got to where we are because race impacts everything in this society. And a lot of folks don't want to see it, particularly if you're white. You don't have to see it because it's designed and structured around you. I, I don't know if that's going to be hard for people to hear or not, but as hard as your life is, um, if you're white, 
race has not made it harder as it has in the case of black people, of Latino and Latina people, of uh, many Asian descended people, anyone who's considered not white. Um, race is, is a factor usually in a very, um, in a way that disadvantages a person or a group. So yeah, those are some of the things they go into. What's, what's the best way for people to get woke on the reality of racism today and everywhere? <laughs> uh, my co-host Tyler on the podcast hates that term woke, but <laughs> I think it is helpful if we understand it. And so I think the concept of woke is it needs unpacking. It means that in some sense, people are asleep. They are unconscious and unaware of racial dynamics in America. As much as folks talk about it, as much as it may appear to be on the radar, there are just a lot of people who have a racial ideology that does not lend itself to making actual racial progress. And so these are the folks who respond when one says Black Lives Matter, they say all lives matter. Well, yes, of course that's true. But historically speaking, and up to the present day, it has not been clear at all that Black Lives Matter as much as other lives, particularly white lives. Um, it's folks who say that, you know, racism is a problem of the past. They can point to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s and say, yeah, it was a problem then, but, you know, Rosa Parks sat down on the bus, Martin Luther King had a dream, we passed the Civil Rights Act, and now racism is over. So why are we talking about it? It's, it's folks like that who, who would say that racism is a problem of the past and we need to stop talking about it. It's folks who would say, just get over it. I wasn't a slave owner. You're not a slave. Why are we talking about this? In other words, they don't recognize the systemic and institutional impact of historic racism and the way that uh, plays itself out today. You can just look at segregation in schools, both public and private, as segregated, if not more so, than uh, when Brown v. Board was passed. Um, you can look at the racial wealth gap, where um, depending on the study you look at, white people have 13 times the wealth of black people. And that's not because black people are bad with money. It's because we never had as much opportunity for jobs, for education, for those factors that would help you earn more wealth over time generationally. So um, these are some really important issues that we unpack. I lost the thread of your original question, um, but I just got going on that because I think it's really important. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry.
No, I, I think it's brilliant. And my apologies to Tyler for using a term he hates. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's got strong opinions on a lot of stuff. No apologies. <laughs> well, and, and maybe this dives in a little bit deeper here. You wrote a great deal about racism and, and politics. And, and you wrote, simply by allowing the political system to work as it was designed, to grant advantage to white people and to put people of color at various disadvantages, well-meaning Christians were complicit in racism. Of course, there are always unintended consequences for our political choices, and not all of them can be foreseen or even avoided. As local church pastors, how do we, how do we navigate these unsavory and unfortunate political ideologies within our congregations? That's great. Just to go back to the last question you asked and close the loop on that, racism never goes away, it just adapts. And so um, there are three broad phases of the way racism manifests in U.S. history. First, there's race-based chattel slavery. Um, Second, there is Jim Crow segregation, which was legalized segregation. And that is, and the latest phase that we're currently in is a racialized society, which is taken directly from Michael Emerson and Christian Smith's vital work called Divided by Faith. I recommend anyone read that book if you haven't already. So racism changes over time in terms of the way, in, in terms of what it looks like. I mean, shackles and chains are are very evident. Um, even segregation during the Jim Crow era was blatantly apparent where I go at the University of Mississippi for my graduate work. It wasn't until 1962 that the university allowed its first black student, James Meredith, and people were so opposed to integration at that time that there was a white race riot in which two white people ended up dead. They rallied at the Confederate monument, which as we record is still standing at the entrance of campus today. And so those forms of segregation and opposition to integration, that's very clear. In the phase that we're living in now, it's a bit harder to see because people use racially coded language. And I talk about this a bit in the book. Now, the, the, the racialized nature where a lot of quality of life issues from healthcare to education to where you live, that can be broken down along racial lines still to this day. But it's not as apparent because people don't use black and white as much anymore in in, certainly not in laws and and the policies that are passed. It's supposedly colorblind, but it really doesn't work out that way. And this bleeds into our politics to get to your to your latest question. So people have to be really aware of what racially coded language is and looks like. So in the. Nixon administration, when he runs on a quote-unquote law and order platform, what does that mean? On the surface, it means, well, we, we have rules and they need to be enforced. Well, of course, anybody can agree with that. But what's the context? The context is uh, urban uprising. It's uh, the, the Watts uprising that happens in, in which uh, I think something like 30 people uh, die in that conflagration. Um, millions of dollars in damage, and the nation is looking on, horrified. What is happening to the to the social fabric of our nation? And these are these these events, these uprisings are happening in cities across the United States. It's the rise of 
uh, the Black Power Movement and a group like the Black Panthers, which are taking the Second Amendment as seriously as white people do and say, hey, if you can carry guns, we can carry guns too. And notice that the name of it is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And one of the reasons, one of the central organizing principles of that particular group, which does not represent the entire Black Power Movement, by the way, but this particular group, the Black Panther, one of the central organizing tenants was to defend black citizens against police brutality, which was running rampant. And so this is an old problem. It's not just a, a 2010s problem. So um, we have to look at those things in our politics. Uh, a lot of the, the reason our schools today are still segregated is, is not for lack of effort. So many people who have uh, been around long enough will remember the controversy over busing. And busing was a way in certain school districts to integrate uh, historically segregated public schools. And so they would put black kids on buses and send them to white schools. They would put white kids on buses and send them to black schools. Well, the outrage among white parents was massive. And they coded their outrage in saying, well, it's about the quality of schools. It's about, you know, school choice and being able to select um, our own schools for our own children. What they were also saying, though, and what cannot be ignored despite their pronouncements, is that they were very uncomfortable with their kids going to school with black kids. Uh, black parents, too, weren't thrilled about it because they knew that white schools had better resources, but it would be very difficult on their children in terms of creating friendships and the culture in schools, all of those kinds of things. So all I'm saying is when we look at our voting choices and when we look at candidates, my goodness, you have to look at the racial dynamics too. Uh, there's so much, so much more we could go into. Um, I just think it's really important because this hits us where we are. This hits us in terms of how we treat our neighbor and I think when folks get in the voting booth and there's no one looking over your shoulder, there's no one ensuring that you are staying true to your words about racial equality or how much you, you like people of other races, then your true beliefs come out, your true priorities come out. And I think too many Christians, particularly white Christians, don't understand the implications of their vote in terms of race and what it does to help or hinder uh, race relations, and more importantly, racial justice, and people having an equal opportunity for flourishing in this society. It's a long answer, but it's 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 an important question that you ask. Hmm. Well, it's it's subtle things that that have become socially norm. Um, uh, Rising out of hatred, the awakening of a former white nationalist is a book that tells the story of Derek Black, who is kind of the up and coming next leader of the white nationalist movement. And one of the things that it documents, this man, he, he, young man, he left the white nationalist movement, has denounced everything about it. One of the things that he said began to um, call into question was the rhetoric being used by certain politicians um, was the same rhetoric being used by white nationalists for years yeah. and how it has become socially acceptable. Um, you wrote, uh, but when we examine our attitudes about race and consider them in light of the history of slavery and racism in America, 
we begin to see that Christians have a responsibility to, and at very least, to consider how the political connections between theologically conservative evangelicals and conservative politics, namely through the Republican Party, have supported racial inequalities. <laughs> yeah, there was a Pew Research study that uh, just came out recently, and it was a survey conducted in January 2019, and it shows a couple important things. Number one, it shows that white evangelical approval of the president's job performance dropped. Uh, it, uh, I don't know the exact percentages, but it was the largest drop of any of the, the religious demographic groups that they surveyed in this particular study. But the other thing is, it remains the highest approval among any of those groups as well. So even though it has declined, it is still uh, white evangelicals who, who identify themselves as such uh, still support the president at the highest rate. The other thing it shows is quite predictably, quite predictably black Christians are among the, the, the folks who have the lowest approval ratings for the job that the, the current president is doing. And I think anyone should, should be willing to ask the question, why is that? I think it's, a lot of people very condescendingly say, well, black people have been duped by the Democrats. They just blindly follow them. They'll vote for whoever's a Democrat, doesn't matter who. Well, again, it's very condescending as if black people don't have minds of their own, as if black Christians can't discern just as well as anyone else. And so um, you have to parse that out. But also, why are black people in general, black Christians in particular, voting differently than many white Christians, particularly white evangelicals? The history behind that is very straightforward. It's the fact that black people tend to vote for the party or the candidate that seems less racist. <laughs> um, and I say seems less racist because both parties have problems with racism, massive issues. Uh, but as you mentioned before, there is one party currently that uses phrases and terminology that white supremacists use. And you don't even have to go so far as to call an individual politician racist. As uh, Andrew Gillum, the candidate for governor in Florida said, the racists think he's racist. And so it's very telling that people who we know and would admit are racist, they find safe haven in one particular political party. And my thing has always been, I don't want every Christian to switch parties. I don't think every Christian should be an independent or a Democrat or a Republican. I think we need faithful Christians in all parts of the political spectrum, but we need to be there as faithful Christians so that when your party or a politician from your party says or does something racist, we speak out against that. And Again, I go to school in Mississippi. Uh, we had a, a senatorial election in 2018 in which the Republican candidate said of a, a speaker who was introducing her at an event, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be in the front row. Now, that's in the state that has the most recorded lynchings in the entire country. And to make an offhand comment like that is at best insensitive and at worst racist. And so there needs to be an outcry when events like that happen. I don't think that person is fit 
for election in a state that has the highest proportion of African-Americans, which, by the way, the reason why Mississippi has the highest proportion of African-Americans is because slavery was so big and sharecropping was so big and that population remains high and the highest concentration of black people in Mississippi is in the Delta, which is where slavery and plantation um, uh, slavery was biggest. So there's a, even a history to that. And now this person who's comfortable saying these things, and by the way, this Republican senator, who is, who she's now the senator, she went to a segregation academy. These were private academies set up in the early 1970s specifically to avoid integration in public schools. And she's posing with Confederate flags and all of these things. So this is in our politics. It's deeply embedded. And we have to interrogate uh, our politics on the right and the left, blue and red, and see where our elected officials are standing and specifically what laws they're passing and how that impacts what the Bible would call the least of these, which all too often in the United States falls along racial lines. One of the most powerful aspects of this book is it really brings to light just how much the church is implicated in, in racism. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. for many people, um, they said, and you wrote on this, that if they were alive um, and active in the civil rights movement 50 years ago, they would have been involved um, and you wrote, now in the midst of a new civil rights movement, um, there's a choice to prove it. The only wrong action is inaction. So how can people practically get involved in today's civil rights movement? And, and what does this look like also for the church? I believe we're in a, another phase of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement never completely ended. It comes in peaks and waves, and we're in another one of those waves right now. So a lot of people who would look back to the 50s and 60s and say, I would have marched with King, I would have protested, I would have spoken up against segregation and racism. Well, I know if you really mean that by what you're doing now or by what you're not doing now. So don't look back and say you would have participated then if you're not participating in the civil rights movement now. How do you get involved? Well, first of all, it's more than just a cup of coffee. I think a lot of white people really only understand racism in terms of its individual and interpersonal manifestations, meaning the problem is bad relationships. So it's people calling someone a racial slur, or it's obvious acts of racism, like burning a cross or saying, I hate black people, something like that. Well, certainly those people exist, but that's not the vast majority of folks. And if that's your only definition of racism, then what's the solution is to sit down and, and, and have a cup of coffee with someone or go out to lunch or, or having someone say, oh, some of my best friends are black. What you're saying is I understand racism as an interpersonal issue that has changed one relationship at a time. And so as long as I have good relationships with people across racial and ethnic lines, I'm good. I'm doing my part. Well, what I always say is, well, relationships are necessary, but they're not sufficient. So what I propose in the last chapter of the book, which is called The Fierce Urgency of Now, taken from a line from the I Have a Dream speech toward the beginning, before the, the, the warm and fuzzy parts that folks like to quote, um, in that chapter, I propose several action steps that people can take, but they, they, they focus on broader systemic and institutional issues. So I'll just go straight to it. I talk about reparations. 
That's interesting because right now among certain politicians, presidential politicians even, such as Julian Castro, uh, reparations is on the radar. And he's proposing a study committee to, to analyze what it might look like to give reparations to African descendants of slaves in the United States. And I talked about how Christians need to be thinking of this too. And guess what? We don't we need to wait on legislation or politicians. If you read the history, and the hope is that by the time you've gotten through 11 other chapters of, of the history in this book, you would be persuaded that racism is not only a social injustice, it's an economic injustice as well. And that you would consider how money impacts the status of black people and other people of color in this nation and how historically we've been excluded from the oper the economic opportunities that many white people have had and if that's the case then what do you do about it do you wait for the government to take action or do you take action and this can look like anything from uh, funding open scholarships and just as a caveat it can be quite troublesome to give scholarships to uh, black people or people of color to go to white evangelical institutions because they will then be inculcated with very Eurocentric ideas of theology and practice, which again are not wrong per se, but doesn't represent the scope and the diversity of ministry uh, to, to other people and across cultures in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, but what does that look like? What, are, what does debt forgiveness look like? Can you pay off the uh, mortgage for, for church buildings for black congregations? Can you um, forgive the debt, uh, uh, the school debt, the school tuition for, for black people in the congregation? I'm just proposing ideas to get your own creative juices flowing. It can look a lot of ways, but I say we should at least consider it. Another thing I think we, we should consider is a big push to make Juneteenth a national holiday. Juneteenth is a mashup of the words June and 19th. It's the day uh, that, that enslaved people in Texas first learned of their emancipation, and it stands as the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the country. I think that's a day that all Americans should celebrate. Why? Because it's not just black history, it's U.S. history. I mean, we had to fight a civil war to, to do away with race-based chattel slavery. Over 700 thousand people died in what is still by far America's bloodiest war. And so we should think about that every year and analyze that because it tells us where we've been, it tells us where we are and where we still need to go. So I think solutions like that, uh, ways to address racism on a broader level are what Christians need to be really putting some time and energy, not just to thinking about, but to doing it. Because my hope is after reading this book, that you would not just be informed, you would be transformed. And my hope is that most people who are not racist or they're non-racist, that is, they don't actively go out and promote racism, but they don't actively fight it either. I want non-racists to become anti-racist so that you are intentionally positioning yourself to dismantle the structures and the ideas that perpetuate racial inequality in the nation and the world and the church today. There ain't a whole lot I can say after that. <laughs> when you let me talk, yeah. So I, I apologize, but uh, you, you're asking really good, deep questions. Well, there's nothing I can add to that. Uh, 
For those that uh, want to follow Jamar, you can follow him on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Of course, go to jamartisby.com and go out and purchase The Color of Compromise wherever books are sold. Jamar, thank you for continuing to open our eyes to the reality of our history and pointing us to an equal and diverse future. Thank you for having me. Thanks for thinking so deeply about this and um, feel free to contact me anytime. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.